Amen. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's illumination as we come to the reading and preaching of his word. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, we pray to you, our Lord and Savior, and ask that you would be uh, our light, that you would reveal, reveal to us the glory of God and the grace of the cross, that we might be redeemed out of lawlessness, out of, um, out of our sins and bondage to sin, that we might be redeemed from death and all the curse and have the freedom of the newness of life. We ask that you would do these things for us, Lord Jesus, as we hear your word read and preached. May your spirit be on us and in us, working and binding us together into you, our head. Amen. Please remain standing if you're able and turn your attention with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus is uh, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. I've been and uh, am continuing to preach through this letter. Titus chapter 2. Paul is giving instructions to this minister of the gospel. He's got a big job ahead of him. He's to appoint elders in every town. Um, there's various estimates as to how many of those, but maybe something like 20. It's a lot of work, and he needs to be clear about his task and what it is he's supposed to do. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. I'm sorry, in um, chapter 2, verse 7, and we'll read through a little bit uh, in... Um, re I'm sorry, I'll read through the end of that chapter. So 2, beginning at verse 7. Speaking to Titus and to us, the Spirit says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. So as you may remember, in this section in chapter 2, Paul gives Titus instructions on how to, um, how to pastorally shepherd various groups of people within the church, right? So he spoke to older men, 
and older women, younger women, and younger men. And then he ended, maybe, with um, Titus himself in verse 7, where he says, Show yourself to be a model of good works. In all your teaching, show integrity and dignity. In this verse, Paul seems to end this section about these instructions, right? He goes through these various people, these various groups within the church, and then he ends um, with Titus. And then all of a sudden, there's this thing about bond servants. And I think it's worth asking, why there? Where does that come from? And to think, and that will be our focus for this morning, verses 9 and 10, what is this instruction to bond servants? What are bond servants? What are they to do? Why? And how does that matter for us? But getting back to this question, why is, the, why are, why is this note here? Now, Paul does instruct and give instructions to bond servants or to slaves in other passages of the New Testament. Um, Peter does as well in 1 Peter. Paul does it in Ephesians and Colossians. But what's interesting about those sections, particularly Ephesians and Colossians, is they're a little different than here, although at first it seems they're similar. They're similar in that you have different groups addressed and then finally bond servants or slaves at the end. But they're different in this way. In Colossians and Ephesians, they're very much addressing a household, a family or a household unit. Paul talks to fathers and mothers, to children. He talks to husbands and wives. He talks to masters and to slaves, the various people that might find themselves in a household. Here, though, although we do have a list, it's not exactly a household, is it? He doesn't say husbands and wives. He doesn't talk about children. He's talking about broader groups than that. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He addresses Titus himself, and then he brings this point up about bondservants. Well, I do think that one of the applications of this is for those who were servants, or even more precisely, slaves, which we'll talk about in a moment, what those were um, in Paul's day. He is giving instructions to them and how to act um, that are very similar to other instructions that he gives in the New Testament. But I think something else, there's another layer of what's going on here. It's not merely instructions to bond servants, but I think part of what he's doing is he's asking Titus to consider himself a bond servant and really all of us as well. Think about it this way. Notice the flow. He says in verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity. He then speaks about sound speech and then he transitions to bond servants. What if Titus is supposed to think of himself as one who is in service of the master, capital M? What if Titus is supposed to think about his calling um, not as one who is not, uh, I'm sorry, as one who is under authority? who, like Paul, is a servant or a slave of God. That's how Paul begins in the very first verse of this epistle. Paul is a slave of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's setting an example for Titus to follow, and he calls him here to be a slave, to be submissive to God. 
to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything he, along with other bondservants, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's a certain way to understand the pastoral ministry. In other words, he's continuing on with his explanation there, even as he also gives uh, instructions to bondservants. And really, it's not just, we, could, we can expand this a little more and say it's not just for slaves and not just for Titus to consider himself like Paul as a servant, as a slave of God, but this is for all of us. Notice how Paul continues on in 11 through 15, weaving together these, these various groups. He talks about how the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. He has brought us salvation, calling us to renounce something. Notice verse 14, he speaks of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus rescues us, brings us out of a kind of slavery to make us his servants. Servants which are not terrorized and treated in evil ways, but servants that are loved and cared for, protected as by our God. And in all of this, as he is, Paul is supposed to, or I'm sorry, as Titus is supposed to have these things in his mind and in his heart and in his attitude as he shepherds his people, then Paul ends with these instructions to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. The instructions to Titus um, are continuing here, and he is to consider and think about these things um, in, light of, in light of this metaphor. It is, of course, also instructions for all of us, right? We are all, not only Titus, um, not only slaves, Christian slaves in the first century, but all of us are redeemed out from lawlessness and are called to serve God um, as ones who belong to him. With that in mind and then thinking about how this might apply in our own lives, let's think a little bit about this word. Doulos is the Greek word for bondservant here. There are other translations of the word. The ESV uses bondservant, uh, it uses slave, and it uses servant. If you have uh, an English Standard Version, don't do it now, uh, but later you can look in your preface and see um, how they deal with this in particular and their sort of arguments for why they do it in the way they do. To summarize, the ESV will change the English word based on the context. It's not a perfect solution, but it is a reasonable way, I think, of trying to address a very sensitive and difficult translation problem. The challenge always of a translation is to help us, right, as the readers, to understand what God meant, right? What did God mean? But that, our understanding of that is challenged in a couple of ways. First, we don't, most of us, don't know about slavery in the ancient world. So we don't have a context in which to understand the word, right? What does that mean? What does that look like? The second is that most of us only know about slavery in the context of American slavery. And so we read it through the lens, that lens, which is the closest thing we know, even though it's not identical. And so the ESV can't say all of that or give a full exposition on the history of slavery or these kinds of things. 
So they've, they've got, you know, one word, right? So they will, that's why they make switches depending on context and what is meant. But we've got a little more time this morning, and I'd like to take it. What does Paul have in mind? What is he talking about when he says slave or, or bondservant? There's so much that could be said. I'd like to point out just three things uh, to, that I hope will be helpful um, regarding um, how the slaves in uh, the first century would have, would have thought of themselves and known uh, themselves. I'll, just three things. I'll say that they were diverse, um, that they were numerous, and that they were owned like property. So first of all, just to get a clearer understanding of who these people were, they were diverse. Since a large number of slaves were, became slaves as prisoners of war, this meant that they were from all over the world, and sometimes Romans themselves. It wasn't just foreigners. Um, anybody uh, really could be a slave, and there were lots of different ways of becoming a slave. Prisoners of war, as I mentioned, um, infants that were left to um, die, um, elderly as well that were left to die through abandonment, um, would be picked up by slave traders. People would sometimes sell themselves into slavery um, to pay off debts, um, to get out of worse situations. Um, sometimes people were stolen. The Bible talks about the evils of man-stealing. People were stolen into slavery, kidnapped. Um, um, there are some records of, of Christians, this is amazing to me, uh, Christians selling themselves into slavery and then using that money to help the poor. Right, chew on that for a little while. Um, so that would be a, a rarer instance uh, of this institution, but um, lots of different aspects and ways of this. Slaves were very diverse, not only in terms of um, their ethnicity or, or however we might categorize that, um, even in terms of generation and, and gender, but slaves were also diverse in terms of the work that they were made uh, to do. Slave work could range from back-breaking work, like moving stones, carrying water, rowing boats. It could be deadly work, um, like being forced to be a gladiator. It could be immoral work, like prostitution or sorcery that would be forced. Um, it would also sometimes be required, the required work would be white-collared jobs as well. The famous Epictetus was a philosopher and a slave. Um, Plutarch tells about this uber-rich uh, Roman who owned 500 slaves who were all architects. Um, very, very wealthy man, and it was measured in part by the number of slaves who he owned who had these um, very specific specializations. Well, based on these things, you could probably guess that slaves were also very diverse then in terms of wealth and social standing. Some extremely wealthy, sometimes the richest people in the Roman Empire, um, in that top, uh, top, top percent. Um, others extremely, extremely poor and everything in between. The same goes for social standing. There was a very diverse uh, body of people. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that slavery in the first century, the slaves were very, very numerous. According to historian William Simmons, quote, it is estimated that as much as one-third of the population of large cities such as Rome and Athens were enslaved to Italy, were, ens were enslaved. 
In Italy, at the time of Augustus, two to three million persons could have been enslaved out of a total population of seven million. He estimates that empire-wide, perhaps one in six people were a, was a slave. Huge, huge numbers. Now, these great number of slaves through, in particular cities, um, in, throughout the empire, often made their masters afraid. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, one uh, person uh, at one time proposed that slaves be identified, because you couldn't always easily identify them. Uh, once somebody suggested that the slaves be identified by uh, some piece of clothing or something like that. But it never came to pass because the concern was that if they looked around, they would see how many there were, <laughs> that everyone would kind of come to realize how prevalent it was. Slave revolts were not unheard of and were a dangerous thing. Some parts of the armies, uh, Caesar's armies, were whole units and sections of slaves, and that was a, a, perhaps in a potentially dangerous thing. There were many many, many slaves. It was very common. The last thing, they were numerous, they were diverse. The last thing I want to mention, and this is the core consideration, is that slaves were owned by other people, like property. There was a great tension in the philosophers in the day of how do you treat people who, on the one hand, sure seem like they're human beings, and on the other hand, are regarded as property. Living tools, they were sometimes called. Well, once you start thinking of someone as property, all kinds of things start to change. The ways that you treat them and the, the kind of rights that you have over them. It's a massive problem. When someone is owned, as these people were, that would mean that their movements, their property, their children, and many other rights, even the right to live, was ultimately controlled by another person. As such, they didn't lack, they, or sorry, they didn't have the rights of either citizens or even non-citizens who were free persons. They lacked all kinds of uh, legal protections and could be inhuman, in, sorry, inhumanely punished for even the smallest slip-ups. Imagine the terrors of an up. Uh, 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 the, uh, of a life that was filled with ups and downs where at the slightest uh, infraction you could be in huge trouble and without almost any legal recourse. Seneca shares a story about a slave boy who once broke a cup in the presence of Caesar Augustus, a crystal, a crystal cup. After doing so, this one Vedius Pollio ordered the boy to be thrown into a pond of giant lampreys. Evil. Awful. You break a cup and you die. And this kind of thing is not unheard of. In this particular moment, though, happily, Seneca records that Caesar intervenes orders that Vedius then watch all of the crystal cups be smashed, his pond be filled, and the boy be let go unharmed. So, good for Caesar at this particular moment. But, this, but I want to give you a sense of the sort of ups and downs. Your life as a slave is totally, totally dependent on those who are in control over you. And justice, though perhaps received in this moment, could not be counted on. 
In fact, Tacitus tells us that before slaves even testified in court, they were first tortured to get rid of their potential lying. That's the kind of justice uh, system that was available uh, for slaves. They never had their own lawyers. They were always represented, if at all, um, by their masters, even when their complaint was against their own master. Much more and could be said and is worthy to be said about this blight of an institution on the human race. But hopefully it helps you to imagine a little bit more specifically and with some detail the reality that our brothers and sisters found themselves often in with as many as, this, as there were in the Roman Empire and as far-reaching as the gospel was going out into that world it was inevitable that slaves would become Christians, even as Gentiles were becoming Christians, and everybody from every class and sphere and place was becoming Christian. As Jesus sent his apostles out into the world, he told them not to just go to one group or one class, but to everyone. An amazing an amazing thing. And as these people in this particular class were professed their faith and came to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, you can imagine that there were certain complicating things about what that might look like. How would it look like to go to church with your master and at church be considered an equal, to be one in Christ? What would it look like? Um, how would you deal with a situation in a church body where perhaps um, uh, you were, um, where you are living and working alongside, or perhaps having conflict um, with other people? This wasn't this challenge of classes and diver diversity within the church is, of course, not just between slaves and masters, but at every level. Right? Massive controversies in the early church about Jews and Gentiles. Right? How do we integrate these Gentiles into the church? Same questions on many other levels. Rich and poor as well. Right? Um, the apostles give us instructions and teach us that these divisions that are normal and typical in society are not to become, uh, they're not to matter or to be factors within the church. So this is the kind of situation um, that we can imagine, we can think about as Paul then speaks about servants, about slaves. Well, what instructions does he give them? Well, the first thing he says is that they are to be submissive to their own masters. This is, of course, a, a catch-all, submissive in their own master, to their own masters in everything. It describes the general nature of their work. Of course, as in any other act of submission, it should never be done in disobedience to God. God. Obedience to God is always required first. And if, a, and if a master required his slave to disobey the Lord, the slave, of course, would have a right and, and an obligation to refuse. As Joseph did when he refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife. As Daniel's friends did, though captives in Babylon, when they refused to bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue and were thrown in a fire as a result. Or positively, we might say, uh, acting when Paul cast the demon out of a slave girl, thus depriving her master of an income. 
These are examples of people who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord despite the, um, the uh, civil institution of slavery. For situations like these and every situation we find ourselves in, we must always remember first and foremost that God is the one who is ultimately in charge. And this is helpful for when we must be disobedient, for when we must not obey, because it doesn't always work out. Sometimes people die for doing the right thing. They die without receiving justice. They die horrific, terrible deaths. But even in these moments, we must always remember that God sees, that God knows. He knows how to bring justice. He knows how to make things right. He knows um, how to give, even if it doesn't happen in this life, uh, the justice that is deserved to those who die uh, wrongly. But outside of these instances of um, required disobedience to God, in all other things, Paul says, slaves must be submissive to their own masters. He describes that submissiveness first by saying they are to be well-pleasing. He must do a good job. He must please. Um, We all have various jobs and work that we have to do, and sometimes when we do our work, we do it in a way that is not really well-pleasing. We do it in halfway ways. We uh, We don't do it at all, or we barely get it done. Another way Paul gives us his instructions instead of doing a good job is he says not being argumentative. A bad worker complains and argues and pushes against everything. He's asked to do something and there's always pushback. There's always a reason to do it later. Always an excuse why it can't be done right now or why somebody else needs to do it or why it's not fair. Instead of spending his time doing the work, the argumentative worker puts all his energy into trying not to do the work. It's aggravating, it's frustrating, and it, it, um, it, breaks, uh, it breaks the obedience he is called to do. This kind of argumentativeness when we are called to work, when we are called to obey and to submit, is not pleasing uh, to God. As those who serve under the Lord, we should serve well and we should serve willingly. Even when the tasks are not pleasant, even when we don't really want to do it, even when they feel like they're taking too long and we don't fully understand them. Submissiveness means doing a good job and doing it willingly. The last thing he mentions is not pilfering or stealing, but showing good faith. Thinking about the institution of slavery, Even ancient writers would write about the great foolishness, to say the least, in depriving someone of their freedom and then keeping them in your home. This is a risky business and comes with a great amount of danger. Um, keeping them, uh, depriving someone of their, uh, of their freedom, and even worse, if you're treating them badly, and then allowing them to you know, be near your bed and near your food. As I say, this is great foolishness, uh, to, say the, to say the least. One of a, a thousand more knocks we could make against the institution of slavery. Well, out of this concern... 
Some people in the ancient world were even freed from their slavery when their master said, enough. It's more expensive and more dangerous to keep this person or these people around than to let them go. You can see perhaps why it might be attractive in some instances to be an obnoxious servant, to be a bad helper, a bad uh, worker, to even sin and steal or hurt. But one person's foolishness and evil never gives us an excuse to be evil or foolish ourselves. We never can sort of justify breaking one commandment, you know, pick one out of ten, because somebody else broke one out of the other ten, right? It doesn't mean that what they did is right. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to make it right or find justice where we can. But what I'm warning you against, as God's word warns us against, is using difficult situations as an excuse to sin, whether it's at work or anywhere else. Remember, our obedience ultimately is is to the Lord. We shouldn't use other people's foolishness and their sins as an excuse to do these things for ourselves because when we work, we ought to be working ultimately unto the Lord according to his will and to the glory of his name. So these are the instructions that he gives, not pilfering but showing all good faith. And then Paul gives us some reasons why. Why? Why should bond servants act in this way? Why should all workers, whether the, no matter what their level of obligation is, act in this way? He gives several. The first is that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know what it means to adorn, right? If you, you um, let's say you have a Christmas tree and you put a tree in your house and then you adorn it, right, with ornaments and things like that. Or maybe if you're uh, making your um, you're getting ready for work and um, you, you put something you know, on your jacket or in your hair to, to adorn, right? It's to, to make beautiful, right? To make something lovely. Now God's, the doctrine of God, our Savior, um, the doctrine about him and the doctrine from him is beautiful in itself. And we'll think about that in a moment. But we add, in a way, in a certain way, to that beauty. We adorn it. This is what our good works do. It's one way, one metaphor we can think about as we think about what is the purpose of good works? What are the good things that we do? Well, part of it is adorning, making beautiful, and ultimately for the glory of God. The second thing that we could say is that, as I mentioned, the doctrine of God our Savior is a beautiful doctrine and a wonderful one. Part of it, and he emphasizes here, is that we are a free people, no matter what our station in this life is. There are these certain core identities that the scripture points us to that we have to cling to no matter what. No matter what this world brings us, no matter what we're born into, no matter what happens in our lives, there are things that always are and always will be true of us as Christians. Because this world is ultimately not our home. We're called to take the long view and 
look at things beyond the, the things of this life. We're called to look beyond um, the things that are just here and now. What kind of redemption, what kind of salvation do we have? Paul describes it in verses 11 through 14. First, he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people. The gospel didn't just go to the upper class or a particular race or a particular tribe. It went to all people. And that grace of God that has appeared has in mind Jesus himself, God, our Savior, The appearing of God into the world to do something that humanity has never been able to do, which is to unite. In a way, not just unite under a project or a temporary time, but to unite under the Lord with obedience to him. What do we do as people? We fight and argue. We hurt and maim. We enslave each other. These awful things, these terrible things, God undoes these things and makes us one in him. Like one body, he describes us as. One body with many members, all of the parts working together. No part more or, or less uh, important. No one can say to, no member of the body can say to the other member, well, I don't think we need you. <laughs> All of it knit together by God, a saving grace in which he unites us together as a people under him. And under him, we're not just wanting wild, uh, crazy, lawless, but instead he unites us together and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He teaches us something about here and now. He equips us for the here and now. This is the salvation of our God. This is what Jesus does and did when he came into the world. He changes people. He sets us free. The Bible, in talking about slavery, I think most frequently talks about it in terms of our slavery to sin, our bondage to sin. Perhaps you know of it. Perhaps you know what it feels like to be tempted so strongly that you feel you have no other options than to obey. You feel like your body is screaming out against you, your mind is screaming and your emotions screaming to do something, and you do it. You obey it. Even though you feel the consequences for it, even though it wrecks your insides and wrecks your relationships and hurts the people around you and ultimately sins against God, that kind of slavery, that kind of bondage is something that just, doesn't just belong to one particular people group or one particular class. It's something we all share in as those who are born under the curse, as those who are born under the fall of our first parents. We need freedom. We need redemption. And those are good things. We need them badly. And that's exactly what the Lord provides. He provides for you, beloved, freedom. 
so that you might no longer be enslaved to the passions of the flesh, to the will of the devil, but to God. Servants of his that desire to serve him, to be well-pleasing to him, that's har- whose hearts and minds and bodies even are being changed. One day at the resurrection of the dead, this glory will be revealed. And this is what we are awaiting for, he says in verse 13. This work of salvation that God has done is not just for here and now, but there's something coming. We're waiting. We're holding on to a truth that goes beyond our present and circumstances. What is it? For the blessed hope, happy hope, whole sound hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Savior, Jesus, God. The one who came into this world and obeyed even to the point of death on a cross, unfairly, unjustly treated by the people the evil, evil people in this world and us dying even for your sins because of the sins that you have committed, because of the sins that I have committed, that Jesus accomplished a salvation for us and he is coming again to set things right and give to us the fullness of our blessed hope. This Jesus who in verse 14 we read gave himself for us. We, you and me, people, humans, sinful, rebellious creatures with all kinds of evils in our culture, in our society, and in our own hearts, the God who made us, the God that we were rebelling against, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people, you and me, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He changes us. And it's that doctrine, this doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of our Savior, the doctrine of his appearing, the doctrine of our identity in him and our place in this world and the glory to come, that doctrine, that redemption, and the good works that flow from it, is what Titus is being called to preach and teach and declare with all authority. Sometimes rebuking those who contradict it and live against it, and sometimes exhorting and teaching and encouraging. He is not to let anyone disregard him because he's super important in himself. He's to let no one disregard him because he's carrying a treasure, because he's carrying a message of salvation that people must hear. And praise God, you've heard it, and I've heard it, and we belong to those, that class of people that say, Jesus is Lord. That we serve him and love him above all others. We are his workers, whether we are pastors or elders or deacons in the church, or whether we have various lay callings according to our general office as believers. 
in all of our various callings that we have in this world, um, in all of our various stations of life, Jesus becomes for us number one because of our salvation and because of our life in him. And so we must consider ourselves as slaves and bondservants of ultimately of God. And Titus must consider himself that way as well. He doesn't have an option to go do what he wants to do. He doesn't have an option to take what he wants to take or argue or complain like Jonah did. I don't want to. It's not going to work. I'll do something else. He doesn't have the option to sort of do it a part way or halfway or incompletely. He must serve. And in doing so, he will adorn the doctrine of God. And God will do his work in the people of God and bring glory to himself. So as we consider these things, it's my hope that you begin, um, perhaps for the first time, and perhaps in a new way, or in a deeper way, to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And then in light of that truth and in light of the good news and the things that he has done for you, to adorn that doctrine with your lives and whatever calling you find yourself in and with your words and your doctrine as you learn, as you teach, and as you encourage both yourself and others. And in this, may God be glorified among his people. Let's pray. Oh God, uh, we pray to you and thank you for this work that you have done in us. We do ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to you and no longer be rebellious according to our own wills and our own ways. Unlike, uh, um, unlike the, the, the ways in which we used to walk, where we did not care about you, when we did not love you, when we did not love your things, you have changed us. And in this change, we, have, we find ourselves most blessed as belonging to the household of God. We have everything, every need that we could ever have provided for in you. We have the greatest uh, standing and nobility that anyone could ever have as sons now. Not just slaves, but sons and daughters of God those who have a right to the inheritance that Jesus himself is keeping for us in heaven. Lord Jesus, teach us to see him and ourselves in him above all things and to work even in the most difficult of circumstances for him and for him alone. Lord, as we do so, let us wait for your appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to keep our eyes upon you and run this race with endurance, knowing that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we ask that you would help us in these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.